In this episode, I'm joined by Joel F. Harrington, who is a historian of Europe, specializing in the Reformation and early modern Germany. In this episode, we discuss his book, Dangerous Mystic, Meister Eckhart's Path to the God Within, alongside discussions on the life and work of Meister Eckhart, faith, history, detachment, and more. I'd like to say a big thank you to my paid patrons and subscribers for making all of this work possible. And if you'd like to support the podcast or gain access to some exclusive content or just keep everything running, then please find links in the description below. Otherwise, please enjoy. So, Joel Harrington, thanks very much for joining us on Hermetics Podcast. My pleasure. Uh, we're going to be discussing your book, which was published in 2018, Dangerous Mystic, Meister Eckhart's Path to the God Within, uh, which was published by Penguin Press. And as I said before we started, it is a beautiful physical edition for anyone who can get their hands on the hardback. And it's also a, 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 just a beautiful book in general, detailing the life and work of Meister Eckhart, whilst also drawing in... Uh, the the culture, the theology, and the general atmosphere of the church uh, in the years around uh, Eckhart, who lived twelve sixty to thirteen twenty eight. So thanks very much um, for this, Joel. And I know it's been a little little while, as you were saying, since you wrote this book. But um, yeah, just tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, how this book came about. Sure. Well, I'm a historian. I work at Vanderbilt in Nashville, and my field of uh, research is early modern Germany. So about 1500 to 1800. And up until now, most of my work has been social history. And I've, I've worked with religion somewhat, but more on things like marriage and abandoned children. And I did a book about an executioner based on his perspective in Nuremberg. And this was something I wanted, I thought about doing for a while and I put it off and I finally said, well, it's now or never. And so I just dived in and, uh, yeah, so it was a big learning experience for me. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great. And well, now I'm really interested. I should have sent you this question via the email. I know you said don't send me any questions, but this is the one I should have sent, which is unique to this podcast. And as you're a historian, now I'm very intrigued. Uh, the hermetics question is really how I begin things, which is you can place three thinkers, living or dead, into a room and listen in on the conversation. In this case, Meister Eckhart is already in there waiting. Um, who would you Who would you wish to have a conversation with? Oh, boy, that's one I should have taken in advance. <laughs> well, yeah, if you need some time. Uh, let me think about that for a second. You can edit this part. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, Eckhart, well, Eckhart's big hero was St. Augustine. Mm-hmm. Uh, he sort of thought of himself as a later-day Augustine, so I know he would like to be in the room with him. I may have to get back to you about that. I just It's hard to do off the top of my head. It is very, yeah, it's, I should have... I should have uh, <laughs> primed you for that one but Eckhart Eckhart and Augustine is already uh I mean we could consider that Roman and begin from that as some sort of foundation I mean what in what sense do you what do you do you see a the common thread between those two do you think it's that sort of clear unashamed vulnerable exposition of the their internal life right? they weren't afraid to put their internal life out there and not you know, and, and to make the internal life as important as the external. Yeah, I think that one of the big connections is that, that they're willing to use their own experiences to help and teach other people. I think it's also that they're both very learned men. They also see the limitations of learning, the certain sort of knowledge you can have from even just reading the Bible, but any of the other uh, the church fathers or any other sources 
there's a real limitation. So they're both, I think, interested in two types of knowing. And one is the type of knowing, like, you know, from outside, I know two plus two is four, right? I know that door is green. And then the other is that, you know, more like you recognize that you intuitively recognize something as being true or real. And that's the part of Augustine that often doesn't get that much exposure. I think most people think of him as a big person in terms of doctrine, uh, for better or for worse. And everybody claims him, Augustine, that is, that uh, both Protestants and Catholics during the Reformation say, we're in the tradition of Augustine. And so clearly he's got, there's some room for interpretation. But I do think that personal journey that Augustine had, it describes in the Confessions, and that um, Eckhart also had is, is something that binds them together. And I just think the way they see things, they, they tend to read the Bible the same way. They tend to um, think of experiencing the divine in the same way. I think there's a lot of recognition in that sense of Eckhart and Augustine. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. Well, moving, I guess, moving into Eckhart, I mean, as, as a historian, I mean, these were, you know, I went into this thinking, you did diving straight into Eckhart. I was, a, I guess I was expecting more mysticism, not that there isn't, right? But because you're a historian, actually, the historical exposition around Augustine, uh, sorry, <laughs> Eckhart's life was surprising to me. So there's really these three things which I've outlined, which are key to, mm. that, that you bring in, which are key to really the building of Eckhart as a character. And the first one, which I found the most fascinating, was really in in, in the years of that Eckhart is alive, 1260 to 1328, as I said, there is a culture of consumerism. And um, I mean, in what sense do you think this culture of consumerism, which really you uh, mirror with our own, which is surprising because we wouldn't think of uh, the 13th century as being that way. In what sense do you, th- do, you, do you think that this sort of helped build Eckhart's understanding of the world? I think it's very important. I mean, that's why I had it in there. I had some hesitation how much of that to do before getting into Eckhart. But I think that's one of the big differences between my approach and theologians' approach or philosophers or Germanists, people who study his language, is they, this is one of the reasons I wrote the book is they have very specific and uh, sometimes technical approaches to Eckhart focusing from the angle of philosophy or his language. And I thought it's very important. Ideas don't exist in a vacuum. And so I think you have to examine his world and his background as much as we can to try to say, how does he, where does this come from? Where do these ideas come from? You know, in the sense that there are some transcendent ideas that work in different cultures, but the culture always matters mm-hmm. in the way that it's framed and the way it's imagined. So for me, I, it was significant that they did have this growing money culture and that there were a lot of people, not just Eckhart, reacting against that, saying this, number one, they weren't satisfied with, you know, just pursuing wealth and possessions. And number two, they weren't satisfied with the existing religious options, going to church, receiving sacraments, going on a pilgrimage, all the conventional things. And so one of the things I thought was very important to start out with is to say, Eckhart's not alone. There are a lot of people who have these reactions and a lot of people who are looking for something else. 
Mm-hmm. And I mean, in terms of this, he's, he almost is, he comes from a position of being almost the uh, the rich man in the parable of, you know, the the rich man can't enter the kingdom of heaven. I mean, he comes from, well, another thing that you point out is he comes from a noble upbringing. And ultimately, this is, this seems in part, along with this consumerist culture, to be his fuel to work from. You know, he's, but he doesn't, he doesn't de- seem to deride any of this in a a revolutionary sense, right? He's quite gentle with it all. Yeah, well, you know, somebody from his background, there are essentially three options of, in terms of career. And one is military, you know, mm-hmm. somehow uh, serving the Lord is in, in a military function. The second is uh, business, really. A lot of these nobles get into investing and other sorts of things. And then the third is a religious vocation, and that's the one he picks. And one of the things that I... I mean, maybe I'm projecting, but I picked up on Eckhart is he likes to pick the toughest things. He like, and, and he thought that was, you know, most noble fathers would have expected their sons to go one of the first two. And the third would only be an option if it could be very highly ranked, like an archbishop mm-hmm. or something like that. And Eckhart chose to be a Dominican, you know, a brother with uh, a big ethos of humility and that was, I think, for him, a, a difficult choice, but it's one that he embraced uh, because it was difficult. And that's the other part of the context that I, I wanted to put in there before talking about his ideas is this is a world where they have the, you know, the, the stories that we have about the chivalry and knights and all that sort of thing. That was really also big in their world in terms of stories and ideas and ideals. And so a lot of them, the idea of a quest, a noble quest, is very important uh, in that world, especially to nobles. And what I saw was that he transformed this traditional noble quest into a religious quest. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, um, one of the, my original verse, sub- subtitle options was Meister Eckhart's Relentless Search for God. <laughs> because that really is, it's a quest uh, that takes his whole life. And so that's so that's the part of the context, again, that I thought was important to get at, to, to see some of his motivations and his early thinking, which evolves over time, like most of us. So do you, yeah, there's very few, uh, well, there's very few philosophers, but some historians will also begin to deny that that idea of evolution, right, of personal evolution, and everything becomes confused because they go, well, we'll take this, you know, the whole idea of young, early, and middle as if as if you can just slot them out and they're devoid of right. some form of progression is sort of ridiculous, right? right? You end up not taking the, the thinker or the person or even the movement on where they got to, right? It's like young yeah. Marx. It's like, well, yeah, but young Marx was, <laughs> a, you know, before what he, that was his evolution. It's silly otherwise. Right. Yeah, and I think as a historian, that's a natural thing that we look at um, ideas in that way. That they're, you know, he doesn't. This isn't all dumped on him all at once, and then he, it's it's a different ways of thinking. And so that's why I start out with the um, the focus on noble literature, which is something everybody his age would have been immersed in, and then move into the life of a Dominican, and that's his culture. And after that, I go into the university, which becomes his world. And those are three very formative stages of his life before he's 30. 
And I think you see evidence of those throughout his life afterwards. So do you, do you think it was a vocation in the traditional understanding of the word? Or do you, do you, you know, that idea of him seeking out difficulty, it seems as if it didn't even begin as a vocation, but as a, a task, a duty. Uh, maybe, maybe I'm overstressing that. I mean, I think it was a duty, but I also think that the duty, and this is, I think, what appealed to him most about the Dominicans, was to teach. Mm. So I think this is another theme throughout his life. It's not enough to just learn a lot of things and become wise or whatever. It has to be in service of other people. And, I, and that's the thing I see him struggling with in the early part of his life, where he's working to help his fellow brothers in Erfurt. But as he goes into Paris, the University of Paris, you know, it's, it's the premier theological faculty, philosophy faculty. Um, I think he's both entranced by it and somewhat um, ambivalent because about really serving people and teaching people, which is what I see him in the later part of his life moving back toward is, is combining his love of learning with his desire or his vocation to teach, to help other people. Mm-hmm. And I should add Dominicans, that's their main function is to preach and to teach. Mm-hmm. Um, they later become involved with the dark side of that, which is inquisition, bad teaching, you know, punishing bad teaching. But in his time, it's mainly about getting the word out. And so it was a big emphasis on preaching and teaching. Mm-hmm. And I think that resonated with him personally. And that was you, one, one thing you, you know, another historical thing that you emphasize, it's also, you know, this, the, the third thing that from the consumerism, his noble background is this choice of Dominican, but you, you, people might now say if they didn't see the time or look back at the time, they might say, well, he just made this choice for very local specific reasons. But as you emphasize, the Dominican Franciscan divide at the time was almost a, a sort of a silent battle. Of course, these, these orders didn't want to say we're trying to get more or we're trying to get more, but you make it clear there was this sort of, you know, which, <laughs> which order is, uh, I don't want to say winning, but that seems to be the way at the time. Well, they were competing in the sense for recruits that they wanted each uh, to get these bright young men and uh, bring them into the order. And so there was that competition to be sure. And sometimes uh, one of the secular clergy, like a bishop has to step in and, and arbitrate say, whoa, 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 let's, let's work this out and and so on. But um, I think that might be surprising to some people who think of the Middle Ages, the Church of the Middle Ages in monolithic terms and that it's very centralized and these religious orders get their marching orders from the Pope. And none of that's true. It's a very decentralized institution. The power of the Pope in lots of ways is extremely limited. Uh, So it's really... Uh, much more of a, of a local, which also is why we get some diversity in teachings and practices, because it's not a centralized institution. And that's why you get religious orders that are supposedly all part of the same Catholic Church competing in real terms in lots of ways. Hmm. So jumping back to jumping back to the fact, you know, he, the Dominicans, clearly, you know, they are the, they are the teachers, they are the people who go out and teach, as you said. Um, do you think that Eckhart was a natural mystic or do you think that ultimately his, his 
compulsion, his desire to teach others, he found that mysticism was perhaps the best way to do this. You know, or, or do you think yeah. probably a bit of both? <laughs> yeah, that's a big question. I'll start off by saying mystic and mysticism is really sort of a later term. Mm. It's more in the 17th century that this becomes a term. And the image that I think most of us have is somebody who sees visions or has revelations or divine ecstatic experiences. You know, you think of the famous statue of St. Teresa of Avila um, in, in mystical ecstasy. And this is a different type of mysticism. He, he never calls it mysticism. Um, this is what later theologians today call apophatic mysticism, which basically means mysticism without images. Mm -hmm. So again, I think the idea most of us have is mysticism is full of images and visions and all these things. And the, people like Eckhart, who practice something called negative theology, say that the more you, you can experience the divine more by taking things away, mm. by eliminating images, by eliminating words, by eliminating all attachments to things in the world, which is, of course, extremely hard to do. So their kind of mysticism is, is very different from that other type of mysticism, I would say. I think the word, partly because mysticism is such a loaded word, <laughs> I might prefer is intuitive. That uh, he would say, these are things you know from within. They're not things you know from without. And this is something that he shares with Augustine, is that there's something inside of us that is already there. It's this divine presence that recognizes things that are good and true. And we just often, it's, there's too much noise for us to listen to that. And so that's, if that's mysticism, you know, it's it's the very different type of mysticism from the visions and, and that sort of thing. And this isn't something the church is always, you could even say through to this day, actually, you know, this idea of the difference between the external and the internal. This isn't something, especially the Catholic church, um, isn't always fond of because once you remove those externals, as, as you see in the book. And, you know, Eckhart is controversial then in his day, and he's still controversial now, I would argue, mm -hmm. um, in, in, in not removing those exter externals, but in focusing on the internal. That's when, I think for the church, dangers, dangers can arise. And, you know, as per your title, do you, do you think that's why he is the, the dangerous mystic? Well, I think, uh, yes, I think he's perceived as dangerous, but only late in his career. Um, and, it's more because of the potential. So in other words, Catholic uh, religious authorities, people at the upper, they're very concerned about order. Mm. And they're worried that something like this or later Protestantism is radical subjectivism. Mm -hmm. You know, I have these special feelings. I have these truths. I read the Bible in my way and I know it's true. Mm. And the argument of those authorities is there's no end to that. Everybody could start having their own interpretation, and it would be chaos. Mm -hmm. You need to have one approved, and, and they would say divinely inspired interpretation. Otherwise, there is religious chaos. And to be fair to these people, I mean, some of them at least, they're worried about people going to hell, that they, mm -hmm. they become confused and they come up with bad ideas. Um, the big concern during Eckhart's, the version of this during Eckhart's life, was something called the free spirit movement. Mm -hmm. 
It's not really a movement in the sense of a coordinated movement with hierarchy structure or rituals or so on. But it is the idea that you have this divine within, and that's the most important. Mm -hmm. And it's really when that divine within starts challenging things, like saying, oh, maybe we don't need priests to tell us what to do. Maybe God can talk to us directly um, or other things. Now, of course, the classic way to defame a group like this is to say they just want to have all this uh, sexual freedom. Mm-hmm. Basically, people say, I'm in touch with God, so I can do whatever I want. And that's the way the authorities portray it. There, I think there probably were some people who did that, but the majority were not. And so I think the fear, the reason he's dangerous, and this is something I think Eckhart never quite understood himself. It's not his words per se. It's the potential to be misunderstood by the mm-hmm. people listening to him. That's the danger. I mean, they say, this is fine if you're in a faculty meeting at the University of Paris. You can talk like this. Mm. When you go out preaching to ordinary people, they're not going to understand these subtleties. They're going to make a lot of mistakes. And that's the church hierarchy's interpretation in the 13th century. And that's its interpretation in the 21st century. Right? I mean, we don't burn anybody today. Mm. But there is a sense that The church is there as a guarantor of the right interpretation of scriptures, of the right interpretation of the tradition. And people saying, I have these individual experiences that transcend conventional Christianity is, of course, they think it's very dangerous. Do you you think from the perspective of the church, those worries about Eckhart being misinterpretive have actually been well-founded with some of the people? Oh, I do. Sorry? I do think they're well-founded. Um, I, I think it's easy for us to say, oh, you know, these bad guys, these these bishops and archbishops, they're all just about their own power. And, you know, there's there's some truth to that. But there, the thing that Eckhart never quite understood or admitted is people did misunderstand his teaching. And there's one, one sermon, he says, people come to me and they say, you're, you're preaching wondrous things, Meister Eckhart, but we don't understand them. And he says, yes, I regret that too. So, I mean, he knows in several of his sermons, he says, I wish I could make this clearer. I wish I could help you understand this. So he knows some of what, or a lot of what he's saying is is not readily understandable. But I think he, at least there's no record of him saying, this is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, that these people misunderstand things. I mean, his response to people who want to shut him up is, they're the, the uneducated are the ones who need the most help. You know, it's like in scriptures that it's the sick who need the physician. So when, when Jesus was criticized for spending time with a lot of the uh, uh, outcasts of his society, Eckhart says the same thing about unlearned people. My vocation is to teach. They need to be teach. What would you have me do? Just sit on my hands and let them sink down. So I think uh, he felt that, but I also, I think there must have been some ambivalence. He was a smart man, so I don't think he could have entirely missed that people were misinterpreting him and and that there might be a danger. But he never says that. Mm -hmm. I guess his teachings themselves, though, 
um, you know, I'm sp- thinking specifically of one of his major ideas, letting go-ness, um, you know, this this idea really of praying, praying for nothing, of complete detachment you know, when, when one goes down to pray, in, what, in the sense that you're asking God for something is for Eckhart uh, assuming a position where that thing is actually more important than the fact you can just have this relationship and communion with God. In the sense that he's teaching, because of this letting go-ness, it seems, as you said, you know, um, you know, the difficulty of articulating what it is he wants to teach, he can't always bring in all that much as uh, as guides, you know, as rails to guide people because his his negative theology, as you, you know, or is is very open, it's very detached. Yeah. So to bring something in to try use to guide people is itself negating the theology. So he's almost, he's stuck in this bind, which I don't know, I guess, uh, philosophers of language find themselves stuck in, which is how can I use language to, you know, talk about. yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, and he actually says that, you know, he says about language, I'm trapped with language. I'm trapped by all these, you know, the ways that we communicate. I think that's partly part of why his, his followers like uh, Tauler and Sousa are more popular because they do give guidelines. <laughs> they do lay it out. And Eckhart, as you said, didn't want to do that. He said, everybody has to experience this in their own way. I'm not going to tell somebody what to do. I might tell them how to get to that state, you know, to let go of all these other things. But the way you interact with the divine is, is you know, is individual. I don't know if unique, but it's, it's your own experience. And so, yeah, I think you're right. I think he is trapped in the sense that he's putting things out there but he doesn't want to give the guardrails that most of the preachers do. Um, and he is very against praying, which as, as a transaction, he says, you're no better than a merchant. God, if you give me this, I'll give you this. I'll go light candles at a shrine for the next two years, or I'll, you know, go on a pilgrimage or blah, blah, blah. It's a, it's a swap. And he says, when you pray to God, all you want is to open yourself up for God to, come out within you and that's you know it's it's also this internal approach as opposed to external of these people with transactions picture a god some other place and they want him to come and do a deal with them and all of these are ideas that he tries to to smash and it's very hard it's hard today obviously you know, Did you- I, I think humans like we are inevitably because of language and experience we're drawn to words and images, which means we're also very vulnerable to idolatry. We end up placing more faith and devotion on the word or on the image or on, you know, whatever. And I think that's, he's trying to get away from the confines. But again, you're right. It's a conundrum. We have to use language. He says, I don't want to use images. And then Half of his sermons are full of images, you know? <laughs> so it's it is a conundrum. Did you did you yourself? How did you, how did you deal with that conundrum when writing about it? To not sort of lose. Well, lose I don't know that there's a solution to it. Uh, I think a lot of um, teachers in the Christian tradition and in other traditions have said, you know, the best you can do is be silent, because if you know you you reduce any of these things to human terms when you talk about them. But on the other hand, we're stuck. We're humans. We have to talk to each other. So if you, and I think the thing about Eckhart is 
if you go off in isolation as a hermit and you're not interacting with other people, it's, I think you might say it's somewhat selfish that you're not helping other people, that you're not serving other people. Uh, and that's for him essential. And then words and images are also essential for that. So it's very hard. It's, and I guess the best I could do is to try to portray the conundrum that, um, you know, you use words and images, but you say, don't pay too much attention to those. You know, it's, it, I mean, he would say it's, it's like, I think the Buddhists have that, that I point at the moon and I say, look at the moon and you're looking at my hand instead. You know, it's like dogs, you know, when you point at something, dogs look at your hand, they don't look at what you're pointing at. And it's the same thing that we have teachings or practices that are supposed to point toward the divine and people instead fixate on the teachings and practices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you, was was he wholly critical of the monastic life? You know, did he see that as well? If you're removing yourself entirely from life, then you're no longer really experiencing what life actually is for most people. Was was he, you know, entirely critical, or was it sort of like there's some people who should be doing that sort of thing? Well, I mean, this is something when, when I teach about this is the students have a natural reaction against monks who just live in a monastery or nuns who stay in a monastery. They think that's selfish. And I remind them that what they're doing is praying for people. Mm -hmm. And people in the Middle Ages think this is a real thing. Mm -hmm. They're interceding with God on their behalf. So they are doing something. Um, but I think Eckhart has, you know, drunk the Dominican Kool-Aid. <laughs> you're no good unless you're out teaching. And they're very critical of monks who just live in monasteries. Uh, they said the, the divine command, and they go back to the, the Great Commission, other things, is go preach, go spread things, go help people, not stay in a, a place and pray for them or just stay by yourself. So I think that's part of his professional bias because he's a Dominican. Um, but there are... People, you know, they are different approaches. Um, and again, when I do this with students, and I sometimes divide them up into two groups and have one that are Benedictines and one that are Dominicans, and I have them explain their thinking and then what they think about the other group. And it gets pretty heated because they say, you know, we're doing what's important and you're not and so on. So I think there was a lot of that during his lifetime. Do you feel in that scenario that there might be a monastic order who wouldn't consider themselves to be the most important? Well, no, because by <laughs> definition, you're, you're committing your life to something. So I don't think you would commit your, your life to a third-rate thing. Um, but uh, there are lots of reasons people go into religious orders, and they're not. it's not like they sit in a room and study everything about all of them and then make a choice. You know, a lot of it just has to do with where they live or who they know or family members. I think in the case of Eckhart, he went to a Dominican school. So that was very important because mm -hmm. the Dominicans were always recruiting and saying how great they were and also saying, but not everybody's up to this challenge. You know, that's the sort of thing a, a boy like Eckhart was, all right, I'm up to that. You know, sort of like the Marines. They were the, <laughs> the few, the brave. Um, so anyway, I think... Um, I think there were, I, one of the things I, reasons I thought there needed to be a historical background is to show just how much diversity there was in the Middle Ages. 
I think one, if I could just change one thing about most people's thinking about the Middle Ages, I would say it was not one monolithic age of faith. There were lots of people with different approaches. Um, some had no religious faith or very little. Um, so it's, I, I don't think they should think of it in, in this really people in lockstep mm. marching along until the Reformation frees them. Yeah, I guess it's probably probably a, I'm I'm going to assume it's a personal bugbear of yours as a historian. And I mean, this you actually emphasize this very early on in the book that you know for historians such as yourself, actually, you know, there isn't there isn't just this like right. It's the Middle Ages. I mean, I'm thinking of a uh, there's a history of philosophy book that that is great, but when it gets to this section of history, right, it just really starts to speed up and it goes, oh, lump them all together for about 500 years um, right. and everything else gets more exposition. You actually emphasize that even in Eckhart's life, he's moving from now what we consider two very, very distinct ages, one one which the later one being more prosperous and more to do with consumerism. And yeah, all these things. I mean, yeah, these ages are often basically, you know, me, mainstream media doesn't help, right? Any quote unquote middle ages drama is basically brown gray and everyone's everyone's miserable right <laughs> well this is this is one of the limitations of language and and images is that we like to generalize we like to stereotype and you know of course if you ask somebody today they say oh i'm very complicated you can't reduce me to a category everybody says that about themselves but other people were happy to put in the categories and and, and time periods, we're happy to generalize about them because it makes us feel comfortable that we have some control over them, that we have some mastery. I mean, that's that's a lot of language, right? That you're mastering things by putting them into words. And that's the sort of thing Eckhart really wants to get away from, using words. <laughs> <laughs> do, you think it, do you think it's also the the comfortable belief that we're, we're beyond that, right? That not only is that bad, but we'll never be there again. And we're better than it. Oh yeah. 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 I, that's another bugbear, bugbear of mine. Um, my book on executioner, I, I sort of, I tried to do two things, which is really get in the life of this person in the 16th century. And somebody you would think, or I think I didn't have anything in common with an executioner. <laughs> and so in fact, we have a lot in common. And then secondly, this whole assumption of superiority about today it which is you know yes there are definitely improvements and we should hold on to those but there are a lot of things that are have not improved and there's uh i don't think people are fundamentally that different from 400 years ago it what changes is some of the, sto- the social structures and the legal structures but i i'm against all this i mean it's it's any kind of ethnocentrism it's like people from one country, and of course, I come from a country where this is this is dogma that we are the best, we are we are unique, and so on. Any kind of dogma like that, I think, is 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 bad, is misguided. And the same thing goes to time periods. If you say we are at the peak of history, you know, we're the summit, which is what people in every period think. <laughs> Right. Mm-hmm. And in fact, we're just on a river floating along and our time period's going to come and go and there'll be things after us. And we are not the peak of history. We're not the summit of history. So I think there's any of that that egocentric notion of a time period or a country or race or any of these things, I think, is, is you know a dangerous delusion. 
So when we're not progressing anywhere. <laughs> well, you progressed. You got a new government. <laughs> Have we? I mean, it's the same. <laughs> well, that's true. Eternal, that's eternal true. recurrence. Yeah, it just be, yeah, it's just a change of partners, yeah. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, to, to draw in one, one of them, I guess, to, to just jump a little bit back into that conversation, that the, the misconceptions of the Middle Ages as these drab, miserable eras of suffering, um, yeah. you know, this is something that that is is a uh, is known about the churches in those eras, especially regarding monastics of slow self-flagellation, you know, sleeping for you know hardly any hours, yeah. hardly eating anything, suffering basically. Yeah. And this is this is one of the peculiarities because you're reading about Eckhart and you're thinking, right, letting go, you know, and and you'd think, well, okay, so the opposite, you know, something that you could do to let go is then give over your suffering, right? Letting go is, and but Eckhart equally says, right, let go, but also you don't get to suffer, you don't need to suffer either. So it's so, yeah. okay, so what's this, you know, what 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 was his problem basically with with suffering? Did he see that as once again a a display, right? I think he saw that as people again attaching more significance to the means than to the goal, and so they say, "Oh, I'm I'm so pious because I'm fasting, I'm wearing a hair shirt, I'm doing this," and they're all just in a in a in a way they're they're egocentric. They're ways of saying, you know, you're you're closer to God or whatever. And I think he'd say, if they help you get away from that notion, good. But if they don't help you, if they just build up these notions of the self, then they're bad. And, uh, you know, that idea of suffering that you talk about, that was everywhere in uh, medieval Christianity, the, the valuation of suffering, that suffering is good. You know, Jesus suffered and died. So you have that model. Uh, and for somebody to say, no, that's not the most important thing. And they, I think the other thing about suffering is I think it lends itself to the transactional mentality that he's trying to get away from. If I suffer and do all these things, then I'll get something in return, like going to heaven, or then I'll get God's favor or something like that. And his idea is once you open yourself up to God, you don't do anything with a, an idea of reward. You just do it. And this is what he calls living without a why. You don't do things because they're going to help you, because they're going to advance you. You just do them because it feels, with, from, based on the divine within you, it feels like the right thing. You love because you love. You can't say, I love because it's a commandment, and by following the commandment, I'll go to heaven. So that, there's, a, there's a larger mentality there. And I, you, know, you might say he's naive for thinking that the larger population is going to get this. Uh, you look at art today, most religions, organized religions, have some transactional aspect. It's very hard to, to think of religion where it's not something you get for something else. And I think that's so deep in medieval Christianity that it's a, it's a very much an uphill battle for him to try to change that idea. And I think he probably underestimates how difficult it is. Mm. Because from this, from this, really is the in a way one of his one of his conclusions. I mean, there can't really be conclusions in a way for him, I guess, outside of the personal intuitive sense. But for Eckhart, it seems we can't we can know God, but we can't know God. We can't know God in the sense of scholastic theologians. We define God um, to define God's characteristics. Um, you can't say God is good. You know, I am good. God is goodness. 
You can't, you can't talk about God in human terms. Um, at one point, he, he's very influenced by the Jewish philosopher Maimonides. And Maimonides was also a proponent of negative theology. And he said some of the hardest things to get away from are a sense of an understanding God or thinking about God is uh, time and space and multiplicity. And what he means is we always think of everything existing in time. We can't imagine anything not existing in time. And he says, eternity is not really just a long time. Eternity is something outside of time. So that a thousand years ago is the same to God as a thousand years from now. now this is, you know, this is hard to wrap your brain around. But he, what he's trying to do is get God outside of human concepts mm-hmm. and space. You know, we obviously there's the idea that God is up in heaven or God is somewhere. And Eckhart says, no, God is everywhere and uh, in everything, not is everything. That's pantheism. And that's what some pe- people accuse him of. But he's saying everything in the created world is infused with the divine. And so there is a presence of God in everything. And that's, you know, that's really hard to make the distinction between that and pantheism, which is a heresy. And then the other thing, multiplicity, you know, we think of, we, we think of the world as separate things. There are two of this, there, there's me and the chair, there's all, you know, we see everything as distinct. And he says, there is no separation for God. There, and these are, you know, these are really difficult concepts for anybody. And then he's preaching this to an ordinary crowd. So, you know, his, his colleagues at the university say, you're wasting your time. <laughs> talking to these people, they're not going to get there. And at, at, at worst, they might misunderstand it and get some really dangerous ideas. And Eckhart says, no, no, I think, you know, if I find the right way to, to preach about this, anybody can understand this. And I think one of the reasons he, he believes that is that everybody has that divine in within them. Mm-hmm. And that these sermons or other things can awake, help awake that divine. Um, wake that divine. the divine uh, the divine spark the divine spark yeah <laughs> which um is what it's all about so it's, it's all, in other words it's already within people he's just helping them be aware of it did he ever comment on whether or not they're considering everyone has a divine spark whether or not what you know what was the case if someone just didn't ever get awakened you know, if no, if they if they never allowed any fuel to be poured onto that spark, so to speak. Well, he's 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 a little wobbly when it comes to to evil and sin and so on, because he'll say um, God doesn't see sin. It's like dark places, and God's the light, and the light doesn't go into dark places mm-hmm. by definition. And so, you know, there's a danger that you're thinking him saying. I mean, he actually says at some point. It's, it's good to have a great sin because that really awakens you more to God. Um, yeah, that's dangerous stuff. To yeah, he's got, yeah, not only is he uh, yeah. he's constantly risking, risking his oh, career. He's, he's shooting himself in the foot all the time. <laughs> but there's another notion of hell. He says hell is just being separated from God. And that's the people you're talking about mm-hmm. who never are able to make that connection with the divine. And since he believes in immortal souls, those souls are forever disconnected from God. So he doesn't talk about a place full of fire and devils and things like that. It's just 
um, an isolated, disconnected, lonely soul. So he says, you sh- people who say, oh, the bad people seem to get away with everything and they get the best of things. And he said, you know, don't worry about that. Because, well, that's, that's a classic Christian thing. You know, in, in the end, the, the, the faithful will be rewarded and the faithless will be punished. But he's, he, he's not big on sin and punishment which most preachers are in the, in the, early, in the Middle Ages. Mm-hmm. You know, if, unless you do this, you're going to suffer in hell forever. And he would never preach a sermon like that. And he, he sort of gets by, you know, right at the end of his life, he sort of gets by by the skin of his teeth in a way. It seems that, am I right in thinking, you know, he, he, he passes away of something natural causes. We don't know the exact day, but passes away of natural causes. Um, but... They, the church generally was there at in the process of, you know, pulling him by the collar and saying, well, "We need to talk." Well, and that was mainly to satisfy. He had a an enemy, the Bishop of Cologne, mm. and the Pope needed the the help of the Bishop of Cologne in some of his um, politics. So he said, "All right, you know, we'll pursue this," but I don't think people should have the idea that this was a big priority with the papacy. You know, this is a a German theologian, and you know it's it's more a case of of censorship or censoring rather. He's never declared a heretic, mm, um, okay. and that's a misunderstanding um, because also he he does what some people think is a sort of casuist move to say, of course, if anything I've said is wrong, I take it back. But that's that's also you know in saying. Nothing I've said is wrong. Wow. All, oh, all, of, all, the, all big theologians do that, though. Augustine yeah. did it. Thomas Aquinas did it. You know, it's, yeah. oh, I'm on my deathbed. By the way, I hand this hand this over. I can't remember what the official name is, right? But it's the, uh, I can't remember. It's a Latin. Yeah, yeah, no, but it, it's, a, it's, your, it's a way out. <laughs> but, uh, but Eckhart is the one who wanted to pursue this. He's the one who took the case to Avignon, which is where the Pope was at that time. And he, you know, he was very stubborn. He wanted to clear his name. He wanted to, and there's a little bit of uh, intellectual arrogance there. He wanted to prove that these other people were so stupid, they couldn't understand what he was saying. So he was the one pushing the case in Avignon, and then he died, as you said. So um, in most times, the case would have died with him. But because this bishop in Cologne really hated him so much and was worried about the impact of Eckhart, the Pope agreed to have it pursued. And, and then they came up with this declaration that found certain dangerous statements in, in Eckhart's teaching. Um, and, and basically they just said, and nobody should be repeating these. There were no orders to burn his works or anything else. It was just saying, this is, he made mistakes on these things and no one should repeat this. And if they do, they're going to have to answer to us. So did it take some time? Was that sort of, um, you know, not an official suppression, but did that lead Eckhart's work to be sort of, you know, just forgotten for quite a while? Well, it did lead to some lead to some self censorship because the Dominicans, his order, mm. they were worried about that, and they didn't want him to drag them down, so they they quashed a lot of his teachings, and they reassigned some of his followers to to different to remote locations, and. There were a couple of his followers that I mentioned before. There's Johannes Tauler and uh, Heinrich Suzo, and they 
do preach, but they're also marginalized within their own lifetimes. So there is a sort of um, unofficial self-censorship going on. There is something of an underground following, though, and these people call themselves Friends of God, which is a great name. And they were based, I think they're more like a reading society. Some people say, oh, this is like a, a sect or something like that. It's more just a group of people in the Rhineland who like to read Eckhart in other works and were in sympathy with his teachings, but it's a small group of people. So yes, by the sixth, by the 15th and 16th century, he's essentially forgotten. And the big revival of interest in Eckhart comes in the 19th century. Mm. Who, who's sort of the, who's leading that? Um, it's a lot of the German idealists. Um, Hegel mentions him in one, in some of his lectures. And then there's a, a couple other books about him. And then his, uh, his German sermons are published. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess they're translated from middle high German to modern German. And those are very popular with a lot of, um, idealists and transcendentalists and romantics and, and that kind of people. And then there's a counteraction where some Catholics say, oh, there are still, you know, those things emphasize the dangerous parts of his teaching. So they publish all of his Latin works, a Catholic uh, priest does, which are more orthodox and conventional. So even in the 19th century, you sort of have two different Eckharts. And the one is more or less thought of as a proto-Protestant. So in the 19th century, there, there are two different Eckharts that emerge. And the one that ends up taking the day in the 20th century is Eckhart as sort of a proto-nationalist, that he's a German. And what's emphasized is less his teaching, that he's a German who stands up to the Catholic Church. And um, obviously the 20th century is Germany's, you know, immersed in this new nationalism to the point where even the Nazis claim Eckhart. They don't necessarily read any of his works, but they use him to say, here's another German standing up against the Catholic Church, which was their enemy. So they were using him to discredit the Catholic Church um, because in the mid-1930s, the Catholic Church still had some power that the Nazis were afraid of. By the end of the 1930s, they couldn't care less. They, they just, it was outright authoritarianism. But anyway, all of this is just to say Eckhart has been used by people different ways at different times. Do you, do you think uh, within contemporary sort of understanding of his work, he's been done, uh, he's, he's understood fairly? Mm, if I did, I wouldn't have written the book. Uh, I think two things. One is, I think the experts, as I've said, have are difficult to, to, for most people to read. So I guess I'm sharing Eckhart's ethos there that you have to make these things understandable to other people. And philosophers are mainly writing for each other. I'm overgeneralizing, but a lot of philosophers are writing for each, themselves. A lot of the language people are writing for themselves. And there have been some attempts at biography, but I, I was not satisfied that there was enough of the historical context. So yeah, one of my goals was to try to put him in the historical context before we start saying, what did he mean? What does it mean for us today? 
So the, I said there are two things. So one is the, the specialist, and then the other are generally um, you know, non-affiliated spiritual people, new age, who I felt have, are really just picking at certain phrases from Eckhart, and they were not looking at him as a whole. Mm. And so I was trying to um, provide something useful to remedy both of those things, because if you go on the internet, you can find all kinds of sayings by Eckhart. Not all of them are true, by the way. Some of them are spurious. But I think as a historian, we always think about context. You have to understand the fuller work, the fuller man, his times. Mm-hmm. So that was my goal. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, you know, I think you achieved it because if I was to ask where should someone begin with Eckhart, I would say begin with your book, uh, oh, thank- Dangerous Mystic. So look up that if you want to begin with Eckhart but maybe I would ask where um, I'll ask two questions I guess one would be where to begin with Eckhart's you know his primary works his own works but also and I guess this is almost like a trick question uh where would one begin to be to to practice Eckhartian mysticism okay well I'll answer the first one is the German sermons and there are lots of collections of those um i don't there's 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 a complete version uh, of them in one volume but you could also get one of the smaller collections um and i think any of them are, are fine the, the translations are somewhat different but not as far as i can tell radically different mm-hmm. so i would say read some of Eckhart's sermons i mean there are certain ones i like better than others but don't ask me right now which numbers they are there's a numbering system um, and then the second part of your question, uh, how to practice this, I guess I would fall back on an Eckhart answer. That is people have to figure that out for themselves. <laughs> I'm not, I, and I, I'm serious though. I didn't want to prescribe anything and say, this is the way to read and understand Eckhart. Um, I closed the book with an epilogue where I sort of say, here are the things I personally that resonate with me personally. And uh, I think are important, but I would never go so far as to say, here's what Eckhart would say today about our current situation. I, I think that's just impossible to say, or here's the way you should follow Eckhart. Again, I have my own preferences and my own takeaways. Um, but I do think it's, I guess I'm more like his negative theology. I would say there are things you should not do. And I think you should not attach too much to words and images themselves. You should try to get at um, the internal sense of what he's trying to say. So again, the hand pointing at the moon, don't focus on the hand. Focus at the moon, what the hand is pointing to. And that's, you know, for any spirituality, I think that's always a challenge because we are limited beings with our languages and our images and our concepts. And so to say, we need these like scaffolding to reach something, but then we should throw away the scaffolding. We should not value it too much. And at one extreme, that would be the idolatry of statues and icons and things like that. But even at the other end, it's, it's really hard to, think in the different way that Eckhart is asking people to do. And 
this is somebody who himself is a very intelligent, educated theologian, philosopher, you know, mastery of all these texts and concepts. And even he says, that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is something that's accessible to everybody. You don't have to be a scholar to understand what's most important. And conveying that or helping people to find it, I think is always a challenge for anybody in any time. Um, so yeah, I don't have a prescription. That's, I should tell you too, that's one of the reasons I don't like um, Suzo and Toller as much is because they do try to reduce him to certain rules and guidelines and things, things that I think he would not have liked or approved of if he'd been alive. Uh, but that's, that's humans. That's what we do. We try to break things down into terms we can understand that are familiar. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel we've covered your book quite well. I mean, uh, what, are you, what are you working on now? <laughs> Something completely different. Uh, I have a book. It's, it's about, um, it's a German mercenary from the fi- mid-16th century who goes to Brazil on a Portuguese trip and is captured by the Tupinamba, who are cannibals. And he lives with them and tries various times to escape and so on. And then after about nine months, he finally does get away. And he comes back to Germany and he writes this bestseller about my life with the cannibals. And it becomes, you know, it, it shapes a lot of the ways Europeans think about Brazil or Americans in general. So I'm, I'm actually more interested in the book and, and the people who collaborated with him on the book. Um, he's a figure that many Germans will know, certainly German historians will know, and almost all Brazilians will know because they feel he uh, denigrated their world because he, he portrayed Brazil as just a bunch of savages. And that that's something they've been pushing against ever since. And some Brazilians actually think he made it up, uh, that there weren't cannibals. And I think all anthropologists and historians today say, no, they were eating people. They were, they were eating the captives. They were eating their enemies. There was a kind of ritual cannibalism. Anyway, that's a, a far shot from, from Eckhart. And that's closer, actually, to the t- sort of history I do. Because, as I said, the book before this was a book about an executioner. So I'm really more interested in social, I, I tend to be more interested in social history. But Eckhart was one, I just, I guess you could say it was a vocation. I just felt called to do this. I thought um, I would like him to be better known and his ideas to be better known. Well, yeah. And I think this this book does a brilliant job. Um, I'll be sure to put the links for Penguin Press and probably for the Amazon link as well in the description below. Um, but yeah, is there any, anything else you'd like to add? No. Okay. Joel Harrington, thanks very much. Thank you. I really enjoyed it.